A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Today on Truth and Movies, Joanna Hogg crafts a memento movie in the semi-autobiographical drama The Souvenir. I wasn't trying to cross any sort of threshold. Mark Jenkin captures a coastal culture clash in hand-cranked 60mm monochrome in Bait. I'm a bloody fisherman, are you? Where's your boat? And in Film Club, we're looking back at Sam Peckinpah's Cornish nasty straw dogs. There'll be real trouble. I mean it. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello there, movie truthers. Welcome to another episode. It's Michael Leader here in the host chair, sitting across from Adam Woodward. Hello. And Ian Mangani. Ian, welcome to the show. It's your first time. Happy to be here. So who are you and what do you do? I am a filmmaker, a writer, occasional little White Lies contributor, and I also program special movie events with my curation group, The Badlands Collective. You've just announced a couple of new screenings, haven't you? We have the 1st of September. We have a double bill of Quiz Show and another film which is integral to the plot of Quiz Show, a film called Marty from 1955. Great double bill. Look them up. And we are also on the 18th of September in London also going to show uh, Putney Swope, which is a kind of very scattershot, wild satire about black power and advertising and a lot of things that were happening at the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s. Oh, that's terrific. They're, in, they're both in London, are they? Screenings? Yes, the Quiz Show and Marty Double Bill will be at the Cinema Museum in mm-hmm. Elephant and Castle. And Putney Swope will be at the Prince Charles Cinema. They're both potential future film club choices, mm. maybe, then. Right? I was going to say, I have to get you to pick a film club. That'd be great. I'd love to see Putney Swope someday. Maybe I'll come down to the screening. Excellent. Let's see how I get through today before we uh, <laughs> talk about a return engagement. Well, exactly. We need to talk about contemporary films first before we talk about old films. It feels like The Souvenir's been a long time coming, Adam. We've had a special issue dedicated to The Souvenir. We've had the Joanna Hogg special podcast. And now we're going to tackle the actual film. Are you keen to get ready? Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about and, and working, I guess, around this film now for the best part of four or five months or something mm-hmm. because... Our summer issue of the magazine, which is sort of currently just on shelf, about to be dragged off with this coming out and a new one actually going to print, well, actually on shelf next week. I can't remember when we first saw this, when we decided to put it on the cover, mm-hmm. but early buzz was like very strong. And I think, yeah, David, Hannah and I were just all really eager to, to sort of get, yeah, dive into this one. And we finally can, shortly as we tackle the souvenir. Mm-hmm. 
Director Joanna Hogg here follows the likes of Unrelated, Archipelago and Exhibition with this uh, slight change of pace and style. Anna Swinton Byrne plays Julie, an avatar for the director as a young woman as she enrolls in film school and starts a relationship with an older man, Anthony, played by Tom Burke, who, it slowly transpires, has not been entirely honest about all aspects of himself. Let's listen to a clip. You came closer to me and took up more of the bed. And you're already, I would say, further over than I am. That's not true. It is true. No, it's not. I haven't got you that have much bed dysmorphia. <laughs> and you, then you accuse me of... I wasn't trying to cross any sort of threshold. <laughs> I have not got that much room. You've got a foot. On that side, That's and I literally am on a ledge. So we've already talked at great length on the other episode, the Joanne Hogg special, about her previous works, her general filmmaking style. Ian, could you maybe say what's different about this film compared to her other films? Well, one of the things when you did that special, you covered those three feature films individually, mm-hmm. and one of the things that you didn't get a chance to mention was one of the things about Joanna Hogg is. She starts very infatuated with the Hollywood system. Mm -hmm. She makes this graduation film at the NFTS, Caprice, which is very inspired by Hollywood musicals and very much living in a dream world. Then she goes off and does TV. She gets those kind of melodramatic impulses kind of out of her system and then makes those films which are very bracing, very stripped back, very observational to explore a different space. And now she's kind of coming full circle. She ne- obviously mm-hmm. needed to go and make those films to perfect her gaze, if you will. But there is something about this one that is a little more in love with the medium of movies and mm-hmm. a bit more swooning and kind of just grand. And she's shooting on film after making those three feature films on video. And I don't want to give the impression that this is some big sweeping epic. It is simply... Somebody coming out, in a way, back to a sense of cinema which they'd previously put away. And she's Mm -hmm. kind of meditated her way back to the beginning, if you will. And um, I totally understand why, you know, the Little White Lies team have been obsessing and plotting with this movie for months. Because it is bracing, in a way, and very emotionally intense, like Archipelago and related exhibition but there's something about it. It's more vulnerable. Mm. And it's so sensitive and you feel protective over it because you get so emotionally invested with, with Julie's character and Julie's journey and Julie's sense of emotionally navigating the world mm-hmm. and this relationship. So, Adam, yes, this mm. Little White Lies is very much invested in this film. Were you excited for this film? What did you make of it when you first saw it? Yeah, I mean, big Joanna Hogg fan sort of leading up to this and seeing... I think possibly Archipelago was one mm-hmm. of the first films I sort of remember covering and, and going to see a press screening of when I when I joined Little White Lies. And at that point, I, I didn't know who she was. I was just discovering her work. It feels like a long time that we've had to wait, I guess, since exhibition. Mm-hmm. And the early word on this was always really strong. And, and you've got like the likes of Martin Scorsese endorsing it as exec producer. And this idea that it's like a semi-autobiographical I, I, I still don't know exactly how much of it is based mm-hmm. on her real life. Like, there's details like the flat that Julie lives in in Knightsbridge is supposedly a replica of the one Joanna was in at that sort of same age. It feels just very personal. I don't know whether 
even autobiographical kind of covers it enough because you could easily write a film or, or, or a story about your own experience in your own life. I think a lot of filmmakers probably naturally do that anyway with sort of narrative, more dramatic, like, well, I guess it is fiction, but but with this, yeah, it just feels very personal, every little detail. I mean, that clip we listened to, I think she largely avoids the sort of meet-cute romantic setup, although that's a really tender moment and, and she gives their relationship plenty of, of space to breathe in certain scenes. I love how you just kind of are thrown into this relationship a little bit and the way she kind of plays with time as well and you're never really sure how much he's courted her or vice versa and they have these lunch meetings. It it all seems very formal Mm -hmm. but you instantly get this feeling of like connection between them and I think, yeah, it's just the subtle things she does, the personal, I guess, emotional feeling and and, and sometimes distance in there as well that that she includes and imbues in every every scene is really what like really hooked me into this film I think Yeah, it might come as a surprise to some people who've seen her previous films to think that Martin Scorsese as exec produced this Do you see the connection there at all stylistically here uh, Ian? Well going back to the whole idea that they're you know very in love with classical Hollywood you know they've both talked about Singing in the Rain as as a big influence and of course the character of Julie is a film student and, Mm -hmm. and as the film goes on more and more of the film takes place in film school and in a studio which is like a big aircraft hangar and it builds to a very particular image which uses the scope of that another thing to say would be this is the first of her feature films that she's made with a soundtrack and it has various you know new wave tunes in it you know it has a bit of Robert Wyatt and things like that and uh, I can't remember if Gang of Four is in it but it's that kind of era you know there's some specials in there there is yes that's right so the use of music, I suppose. Uh... In fact, she uses the music supervisor, Elena Cheshire, who That's did right. Martin Scorsese's vinyl for That's TV, right. and I think she worked as a researcher on Wolf of Wall Street and some of the recent films. It is fascinating after having such sparse use of music in her previous three films to suddenly have music used as not only a sense of place and time. This is set at, I think, undetermined mm. period of the early 80s. Yeah, mid-80s. Mm-hmm. Judging by the when the songs come out I they're guess. having various debates about the film students have various debates about the commercial aesthetic versus mm-hmm. the quote unquote you know more stripped back artistic aesthetic mm-hmm. and it's they mention Diva and a few things like that and there's yeah. IRA bombings in yes, the film yeah. and Interesting. Ariane Labed, who's a Greek actress known from Yorgos Lanthimos' films, turns up as a French film student in this. Right. It's fascinating to see her adopting a French accent <laughs> towards the end of the film. But also use of music, classical music here, very much uses the post-punk new wave music to define the youth of the time. And then Antony is defined almost by this, this classical music, including excerpts from Bartok's Bluebird's Castle, the opera, mm-hmm. which feels to me like it's always played a little hot in the mix, mm-hmm. as if that is overbearing all of the other music in her life, as he comes to define her personality in some ways or overwhelm her personality. But also, of course, Bluebeard's Castle is a is a story of a young woman being courted by an older man who maybe has skeletons in his closet. So That's there's right. a lot there in the use of music. We should talk about the cast, really. Tom Burke, I, I don't think I'd seen him in anything before. He has such a sinister but mysterious energy in this film quite a revelation for me really yeah he's quite sort of endearing and, mm-hmm. and charming he plays Anthony as this sort of dashing bastard I guess and yeah. he, I mean you use the word overwhelming to describe the, the way the music kind of fills the room and his presence I think is, is felt in this film even in the scenes he's not in he just completely consumes her her every thought and every desire and I mean, this flat in, in Knightsbridge, which is obviously like a nice student digs for for someone at that time, but it's not a huge, it's mm. palatial 
flat by any means and a lot of it is set in well there's stuff in the bedroom there's stuff in the kind of main living space where they listen to music and and have dinners and things and yeah I just love the way she manipulates and films within that space itself and there's an amazing scene I guess we can go into a little bit about the nature of their relationship Mm. and how it kind of unravels and he he is Anthony's very destructive self-destructive character and there's there's one scene in particular where he is going through a very difficult time personally and Julie's sort of helpless really to to be of any assistance and e- even sort of the, the love that they've they've got between them doesn't feel like it's enough and mm. it's a really kind of gut-wrenching moment and yeah really really tough to sit through actually I mean you could almost go too far with that and make it too melodramatic and but I think his performance is just so spot on in, mm-hmm. in really like conveying this anguish and yeah this this sort of sense of um a guy who comes across as as putting on a bit of a front, maybe. Yeah. I mean, he's very immaculately turned out. He obviously speaks with a certain um, confidence and maybe arrogance that comes from kind of going through the public school system and, and being from kind of money. And but yeah, his his vulnerability, I think, is the key to the character and, and Julie's as well. But there's also a man out of time. There's mm. a character played by Richard Ayoade, who's an old friend of his that appears in one or two scenes, and he refers to some of his activities as oh so 1920s, and maybe that's who he is. He's looking backwards rather than Julie, who's looking forwards. Mm. But we should talk about Honest Winton Byrne. There's something fascinating about this film: the, the the levels of truth and fiction, metafiction here, and Honest Winton Byrne, Tilda Swinton's daughter. And Tilda Swinton, who appears as Julie's mother, and also Tilda Swinton's a family friend and mm-hmm. long-time collaborator of Joanna Hogg. She appeared in Crip Priest, the, right. the film you mentioned, Ian. Honest Winton Byrne, not a professional actor by all means. She, this is her first feature film. What does she bring to Julie? Well, I mean, she's just extraordinary. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about Tom Burke's performance is he, yes, is a very self-destructive character who we learn does not have a lot of control over Mm. his life. However, he's a mystery. He's kind of caustic, but he's also tender. He has that kind of oldie-worldie charm and knowledge. And he he has a sense of self-possession, even though we learn how self-destructive he is. He, He projects that outwardly. She's the opposite. She's, in a very uncertain way, learning to navigate the world learning how to read this man, figure him out, as we are as an audience. I mean, not only is Honest Winston Byrne not a jobbing actor, Mm -hmm. she didn't know, apparently, what was coming in the film. Mm -hmm. Joanna Hogg writes her scripts as, you know, frameworks, scrapbooks. She doesn't write them as conventional scripts, just full of dialogue and stage direction. And she would only dole out things to honor scene by scene, and it was more important that they have some kind of innate trust. I didn't know that when I saw the film, but you kind of sense that in retrospect because her reactions, her figuring out of this mystery at the heart of this man in this relationship all seems so genuine. And, and that's and, and that's another reason you feel protective over the film because, you know, she has to develop this inner strength, but along the way she's very kind of doe-like and, and sensitive. Doe with an E, not with an U-G-H. <laughs> Um, I just remembered when I spoke to Tom Burke for the mag, I don't think this actually made it into print, but he mentioned just as an aside that there's a scene at one point where Julie has a has a sort of one night stand or a fling with a, with another character who's like in it for a kind uh-huh. of scene and and um, great awkward nude scene. Yeah, exactly. And and Tom Burke, I think, didn't know didn't know that happened in the story, <laughs> and, and so he and he bumped into it. I think he knew this actor. 
and bumped into him at an audition or just a social event or something some months after filming and uh, talking about the film, what did you play in the film? And, and this, this guy revealed basically that he has this fling with Julie and yeah, Anthony or Tom Burke had no idea. So yeah, just ex- I guess gets that idea across of how John Hogg manipulates her actors in those ways and gets those really genuine reactions and performances mm-hmm. out of them. But yeah, I mean, Alice Winton Byrne is, again, in the interview that we've got in the mag with her and um, Joanna sort of speaking to each other, she sort of shows not that much interest in acting, mm-hmm. pursuing it as a full-time career. She's already enrolled in university, hasn't yeah, she? Yes, so I think, they, I think they're currently going off filming Souvenir Part 2. They just wrapped. Just wrapped, yeah, yeah. okay. Which I'm guessing she'll obviously play a part in that, but uh, yeah, beyond that, I think it's... Yeah, I just want to crack on with the university. And I think she even says, it's Sophie's interview for mm. The White Lies, uh, Sophie Monks Kaufman's interview for, with Honor and, and Joanna, and I think she says that it's working on this film has inspired her to go out and I think she's studying is it psychology or history of art or something based on the work. Yeah, of find it, out more so. about people. And, and yeah. yeah, It's really fascinating. All of these strategies and metatextual levels can't help but make me think of the Avengers and Disney, <laughs> particularly the way that this film ends with a title card saying, almost saying, Julie will return in the souvenir it part two. think of uh, Jane Silent Bob will return at the end of the <laughs> And of course, the second part is coming out soon and it seems, well, I certainly yeah. think there's plenty more oh, yeah. to come. I, I can't wait to see more. The Hogverse is expanding. Maybe Tom Hiddleston will have a cameo in this one. Who knows? When you want to talk about extended universes and, you know, you mentioned Bluebeard. I mean, one of the notes we had to talk about was the classical lineage of this going back to Mm -hmm. the title is a reference to John Honoré Fragonard's painting that they go and see in the movie and they discuss the meaning of it. And it's about, you know, a young woman carving her, her lover's name in a tree and they have an exchange about their different interpretations of it. Of course, this movie is, in a sense, Joanna Hogg carving her lover's name in a tree. The lineage goes beyond the painting because the the heroine of that painting is Rousseau's Julie from his novel, his romantic novel, Mm -hmm. which in turn is a reference to the kind of, not the myth, but the the legend Mm -hmm. of of Eloise, Mm -hmm. the... um, the loved-up nun, to put it simplistically. <laughs> and so, you know, this kind of... She's adding to a universe that exists beyond the Hogverse, if you will. You yeah. know, there's a, the, she's dialoguing with the classics and contributing to it. There's so much to pull apart from this film, and it works so well on an immediate emotional level. I'm just reading so many reviews out there of people who have responded and found so much to relate to in this film. Yeah, and, and actually, having seen it twice, I was less clear the second time about just how it becomes so great. Mm-hmm. There is an alchemy to it. I mean, when I saw it the first time, I really went through Julie's journey. I had no idea what was coming. I didn't know exactly what secrets were going to be revealed. The second time, it seemed much more tightly plotted. It seemed very ABC. This is what happened in this relationship. And did I already say the word alchemy? Because that's how I feel. <laughs> you know, There's something about her method that just kind of locks in and imbues the whole thing with this enormous sense of emotion that gently comes at you and and kind of envelops you Mm -hmm. it's almost one of those films where you don't really you don't really want to see the artifice or find out like how it was made or you know it just feels like it's just been pulled from her memory and her mind and and just dropped onto the screen for you to watch and you know that okay we've done a lot of research into this and spoken to some of the cast and tom burke talking about the, the real life anthony's correspondence and letters that Joanna showed him to give him an idea of this of this man and you know all this stuff obviously feeds into that and is like an invaluable 
part of, or, or certainly for the actors was an invaluable part of their whole process of getting into the mm-hmm. into the characters and into the roles. But yeah, I just feel like it's it's one of those films that you almost don't want to dig too deep into it in that way. Mm-hmm. It feels so lived in and so just alive, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, we should, before we run the risk of digging too deep, let's put some scores on this. Ian, I'll come to you first. So this is In Anticipation, Enjoyment, In Retrospect. Yeah, four or five, actually, for Anticipation, because you see a Joanna Hogg movie and she announces herself in, you know, the first shot you see as a great director because her style is so particular and her way of looking at people is so incisive. Having said that, they're not all quote-unquote fun to watch. You know, you have to take a deep breath before you go into her world because some of her films can be quite hard. Mm -hmm. Enjoyment 5, yeah, it's totally engrossing and emotionally overwhelming. And in retrospect, 5 as well, I think, you know, we could keep picking at it and still not kind of dissipate the essential mysteries of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I just think it's a masterpiece. Well, Adam? Yeah, I think 455 as well. Mm -hmm. And the 4 probably because... As much as I, I do like her work, I think Exhibition was a tougher nut for mm-hmm. me personally to crack. And I haven't actually revisited that one um, since seeing it originally. Um, but this is one, I mean, uh, pretty much as soon as it finished, I wanted to watch it again. And I've seen it three times now, I right, think. Right. Well, you know, when we give these kind of scores, it's always a bit of an arbitrary thing. But I think in, in retrospect, if you walk away thinking, I not only want to go and see that again to unpick certain mysteries of it and, and find out more detail, but just feels like one of those films you need to mm. you have like a compulsion to watch and revisit mm-hmm. so yeah I think it has to, has to get top marks yeah for me it's 444 four, four, but might as well be top marks on, on second viewing we'll see once I do revisit it anyway that is The Souvenir in Cinemas and On Demand this week up next we have another British film with Bait Now, Bait. Shot on black and white 60mm film, Mark Jenkins' drama focuses on Martin, a Cornish fisherman whose livelihood has been endangered by the rising tourist trade in his coastal village. He must contend with the influx of stag parties, day cruises and the Airbnb economy, all getting in the way of his ambition to buy boats and keep the fishing industry alive. Here's a clip from the trailer. You've been clamped? I think so, yeah. Who done that? Who do you think? You own the bloody street. You can't just park there all day. It's fine you picking stuff up and dropping stuff off. I work off. in the arbour. I'm a bloody fisherman. Are you? Where's your boat? See you on the beach. I'm telling Mum you're hanging around with him. You live in this community. Oh, the community. It's quite amazing that these two films have landed in the same week. Of course, we've talked a lot recently about British cinema. The most recent issue of Little White Lies has that as a focus. And here are two future classics almost side by side. Adam Bates is experimental, it's emotional, it has a fiery political anger behind it as well. Where do we start to talk about it? We can come on to... I know Ian saw this in Berlin, so it'd be great to hear his experience of seeing it on the big mm-hmm. screen there and, I guess, knowing nothing about it. And I'd sort of heard a few things and mutterings of this, yeah, really experimental film shot on black and white, 60mm, Kodak monochrome, all kind of hand-processed mm-hmm. and the whole look of the film is, is going for a very deliberate aesthetic. It kind of harks back to German Expressionism and old Soviet movies from the sort of 30s or... Mm-hmm. And every image seems to have this natural degradation to it. It's, mm-hmm. it's very scratchy. It feels like it's been 
just kind of like hauled out of a vault or or someone's just you know found it in a in a trunk at the bottom of the sea somewhere mm-hmm. and yeah it's a purely aesthetic experience I can't think of anything that I've seen like it that's this contemporary. Having said that, when I first sat down to watch it and really not knowing much about it, first couple of minutes, I was like, oh, no, this is like a sort of student postgrad degree <laughs> film. <laughs> and it really took a couple of moments for it to sink in and realise, like, appreciate what I was watching. And, and I think it just, yeah. And it's quite a short film. Mm. But the more it goes on, the more you kind of get pulled into it. And it's just exceptionally funny as well the mm-hmm. humor of it i think really stands out the performances i mean edward rowe plays martin the the, the fisherman he's like a, a protagonist out of an old soviet film mm-hmm. i mean he's just got this amazing steely gaze and look and he's he's a kind of mountain of a man as well and i don't know his background whether he's a non-professional actor i know he's a, a mixture a local of local comedian i think oh I read right somewhere yeah mm-hmm. yeah it feels like he's he's obviously mark jenkins obviously gone and, and, and sort of actually canvassed locals and got them in and there's, I think there are some more professional actors in here as well but for the most part I mean yeah Edward Rowe's performance is the thing that sort of carries the film and yeah like it's really difficult film to talk about. Well, because um, most reviews most discussions start on this formal level mm. because it has so many in terms of films you will see at your local cinema it has so many uh, unique qualities to it but then it is so alive in the the themes it has, the characters, the dialogue, even though it's post-recorded audio, post-synced yeah, audio overdubbed and so on. And, and it, these are all things that maybe for the first couple of minutes may feel that you, you've strayed into the wrong screen yeah. in the cinema. I'm always tempted to steer people away from being too preoccupied with yeah, the formal exercise of it and, and that stuff may f- seem on the surface very sort of highbrow and mm-hmm. chin-strokey and, and something that very serious-minded critics, cinephile types would sort of froth over. But actually, there's just so much more to this film than Mm -hmm. that. You do see independent, especially kind of short and mid-feature-length films, which do have a kind of experimental, Mm -hmm. quote-unquote, edge to them. And it's not particularly anything new in that sense. But I think what he does with it in in the story he's trying to tell, which ostensibly, I mean a kind of drama about the gentrification of a Cornish fishing village doesn't feel particularly fresh and invigorating subject matter. But I think the way he, aside from the the formal aspect of this film, I think the way he presents that subject is just really thrilling. And as I say, it's really funny as well. It can be very funny. Ian, in your review from Berlin for Sight and Sound, you compared it to Do the Right Thing, mm-hmm. which is such a good uh, comparison to make, a film that can be at once so enjoyable in some yeah. ways, formally experimental in other ways, but politically engaged. Like Do the Right Thing, it comes to a boil. Mm-hmm. And you don't know at the beginning if it's going to be a comedy, some mm-hmm. kind of, you know, knockabout League of Gentlemen style comedy. <laughs> yeah, like a pastiche almost. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And another film it reminded me was The Evil Dead, the way it kind of <laughs> bangs together with those muggy close-ups and you're like, okay, is this going to become a genre exercise or is this just about these people on a realistic level? And I know you, we don't want to harp on too much about the the formal aspects of it, but they really do announce themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think there is an uncertainty that the film generates about, hang on, is this an accident, a student film, or is is this somebody who doesn't quite know what they're doing, or mm-hmm. is this very carefully planned? And, you know, the way it uses that tension of your uncertainty mm-hmm. is very compelling because at once the film feels very deliberately put together. It feels like it has a real architecture to it. Mm. And at the same time, it kind of just bangs together. And the way that posting sound works, is there's something just off about it. Mm-hmm. And so at once you feel like you're in the hands of 
a very carefully controlled film and you also feel like you're kind of eavesdropping on a conversation without quite processing it. And so there comes a certain point where you just get engrossed in the movie and you still don't know what's coming next. You still don't know if this is going to be tragedy, horror, realism, comedy or some kind of weird mix of all of them. Well, no, I was gonna, I was gonna get into spoiler territory. Let's maybe not do that. Depends how far in spoiler territory you want to go. I was just gonna say, it kind of, it does boil over and become, yeah. on a certain level, quite despairing and angry. Mm-hmm. And there's even, it even kind of ends with a bit of a, an ellipsis to it. Mm-hmm. It has such a sharp satirical edge. It's so delightful and exciting. We talk about class so much. We, mm. we didn't mention class in the souvenir yep. chat. We probably have to mention it here because it is very much about this influx of London money in the air, B&B mm. economy, into the coastal towns which have been ravaged by the decline of the fishing industries. Okay, this sounds quite perhaps quite uh, journalistic yeah. but it manages to infuse it with such humour. There's a character that turns up and he gets out of the car and he has a man bun and you immediately know <laughs> Mark Jenkins' take on this first person. <laughs> this also the line that the local barmaid says about one of the poshos who's come to holiday there and she goes, one of them was so posh, I thought he was speaking German. <laughs> <laughs> I think this, yeah, the satire and the humour is the thing that shines through there uh-huh. rather than, it is a sort of angry film under the surface but I don't feel like Mark Jenkins is necessarily pushing his own politics or his own agenda mm-hmm. too much. It's, it's more observational in that yeah. sense in, in the way it depicts this, I guess, decaying, not just the town itself, which, I mean, you go to a lot of Cornish fishing villages and some of them do feel like they're kind of trapped in amber a little bit and mm-hmm. preserved for like the tourism industry mm-hmm. which is obviously not a new thing there but is, is a thing that has boomed over the years and this feels like there isn't necessarily anything noticeably modern about it in the way that the characters aren't tweeting or or on their kind of phones a lot but it's obviously set in the present day this idea of like Londoners coming down and buying up, you know, holiday cottages and renting them out, and his brother who who's inherited the the, the father's boat is taking out tourists on or like stag parties. Is a wonderful scene with like a hen or a stag party taking out day trippers, yeah. and uh, yeah, the, the, I think it's more interesting in the way it deals with that tension between old world, new world, mm-hmm. locals, people who are sort of invasively coming in not not necessarily in like an insidious way Mm. they're not kind of like corporate businesses coming in and taking away the sort of essence and the soul of this place it's it's more it's a subtler thing than Mm. that it's more like a gradual degradation it's it's these people just wanting to have a nice time wanting to come down and and holiday i guess Mm. and get away from the hustle bustle of london and yeah just fascinating i think how he deals with that how Mm. how he sets up those two like binary oppositions what scores would you give this adam i've actually reviewed this and 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 given it i have to remember i think i gave it like a two four four in my Uh review uh i mean that four may well be bumped up i haven't revisited it would love to i think i think it's a yeah really wonderful film Really, these two films that, we, that we've covered this week really show British film. We, we kind of talk about it a lot and criticise it a lot, I think, and hold it to such high regard. And this shows that it is in, in rude health in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Ian? I would say 344. I'd heard good things about it by people who, you know, kind of... You know, Jenkin is kind of known on the circuit a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. he's been kind of waiting to break through for a while. So I have friends who know him and were kind of whispering about this film. Nevertheless, I was a little cautious of it. I didn't really mm. know what to expect. And then, yeah, 4-4, it's very original, invigorating, kind of unsettling film and not easily forgotten. Mm. And 
I would like to see it again. I must confess, I did not see it on the big screen at Berlin because uh, scheduling problems, so I ended up watching it on a laptop oh, in my hotel. As Mark Jenkins was <laughs> intended. Same. Well, he sent it all to the, me. So. All the, the hand-crafted <laughs> film there. I will, I will make a point of seeing it on the big screen. I'm really looking forward to seeing it on the big screen. Yeah. And, and same, really. 344, four, I'd say. But this really captures everything that I love about British cinema, something that's connected to the country, the landscape, the fabric of society, whilst also darkly humorous and formally experimental. It feels like a BFI production board film from the 80s that's Mm. just been released today. Just to drop in, about halfway through watching the film, I realised that, you know, the pub that they own quite a lot, I realised that I played a gig there once. (laughs) If anyone's down in Penzance, it's the Admiral Bembo in Penzance. It's basically like a weird nautical themed. It's like decked out like in the bow of a ship. In my gigging days, played to about four people and a dog. You but should they, they do a get really the band good. back together. Yeah. I know. Be well, in Jenkins' next movie. Yeah. It'll be like, you know when the band plays in a werewolf movie <laughs> or in like, you know, or in Roger Corman film yeah. or something like that? We can do that scene. We've got to make that happen. Forget true about the films. We're true about Adam's shady past as a, as a drummer right there. They, they do a cracking burger. Not catch the day. Uh, no, we just had a burger. A house burger. It was very good. <laughs> well, terrific. <laughs> well, that's Bait and the Souvenir, both in cinemas this week. Up next, we have Film Club, which this week is another Cornish film. It's Straw Dogs. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online, and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Yes, back to 1971 for Film Club. Dustin Hoffman plays a nebbish mathematician decamping to the Cornish countryside with his British wife, but the locals don't give them the warmest of welcomes. After his violent western, the Wild Bunch director Sam Peckinpah was already a notorious filmmaker, and he came to the UK to make this similarly violent home invasion thriller, one that was controversial at the time and has lost none of its provocative power in the decades since. Before we dig in, let's revisit the original 70s trailer. Okay, you've had your fun. I'll give you one more chance. And if you don't clear out now, there'll be real trouble. I mean it. This is David Sumner. All his life, he's been running away. 
turning his back on trouble, involvement, and confrontation. Until now, he took his wife and fled to an English country town. There was once a time, Mrs. Sumner, when you were ready to beg me for it. Take your hands off me. He thought he could find peace and refuge. Instead, he found that a man can't hide forever. Sam Peckinpah, who uncaged the Wild Bunch, now unleashes Dustin Hoffman in Straw Dogs. How about that trailer? What's our history with this film then? Ian, have you seen this film before? I imagine so. Sam Peckinpah being quite a, an auteurist favourite. Yes, and also, you know, I came of age in the mid-90s and this was on the Video Nasty list yeah. and still not allowed on video until mm-hmm. the very late 90s. So it was it was a film of particular interest. Mm-hmm. We should say at the top, people joke a lot about trigger warning culture and all this kind of thing. Genuine trigger warning yeah. for straw dogs from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. Not only is it a film with a graphic and strange rape scenes, but a film that really goes there with kind of thinking <laughs> thinking taboo thoughts about the psychosexual dynamics of violence and control mm-hmm. and and flirting with disaster and all this kind of thing in a way that people do and did and have you know genuinely found compelling but unsavory um mm-hmm. which i think is more than defensible to think that yeah, and this is a notorious film. Yes. There's probably one reason why. I know I saw it when it finally came out on DVD in, I guess it's it's final uncut form in the early 2000s. Yeah. Gosh, we can't dance around the fact that the one particular of the two rape scenes is, is quite controversial and has been talked about and written about mm. and reassessed by various classifications. Well, they conflated them in one the cut, years. which made yeah. them worse. Yeah. yeah. The most recent BBFC reclassification, which looks at the emotional journey of that rape scene mm. is is particularly yeah I don't, I, i'm not sure if this is one of those films that um it might just be over the line for me it's almost too nasty for me to revisit now well i, I first watched it because it seemed to be one of those films that was highly regarded it's mm. on it's on like the thousand and one movies you need mm. to see before you die list mm. and and i remember watching it originally in, in my kind of student days i guess and and i guess not really aside from the obvious controversy not really getting what all the fuss was about in terms of it being heralded as this kind of classic of... I mean, I certainly don't think it's a patch on like some of Peckinpah's other work. Mm-hmm. And he is a very strange filmmaker mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think this is like only a couple of years after The Wild Bunch. Yeah, I think Pat Garrett and, and Billy Kidd came out a few more years mm-hmm. later than that as well. So I get that, that was sort of the peak of his career. It's certainly a very unpleasant film to watch. And I think actually, interestingly, not a film that has necessarily been reassessed and reevaluated by like contemporary ethical moral standards it's like at the time critics were labeling it like fascist and misogynistic and and you feel like it's maybe a film which always courted controversy mm-hmm. like I, I don't believe that Peckinpah didn't really know what he was kind of doing with this when he, when he set out to make this very loosely adapted from a novel mm. as well which kind of deals with similar th- themes but he really ramps them up here it's just a particularly nasty film even one to revisit now it it hasn't lost any of that impact for better and worse I think it's such a strange image I have to coming from Bait a film which does have some natural empathy for the people who Mm. live out in the sticks in the southwest they're an interesting bunch they're a wild bunch in their own way aren't Mm. they the locals in in Straw Dogs and they just by the end become these bandits that 
suffer the ire of uh, an uncaged Dustin Hoffman. Where does this fall for you, Ian, in terms of the, the annals of Dustin Hoffman's career? So this is 1971. This is post his 60s rise to fame. Where was he? Peckinpah was almost out of favour in Hollywood. That's why he had to come to the UK to make it. But where yes. was Hoffman? Well, he'd just made Midnight Cowboy mm-hmm. and Little Big Man, I suppose, would have come out within the same year as this as well. A revisionist Western, incredibly violent... Mm-hmm. Um, this was America losing its mind and yeah. reassessing itself and trying to go somewhere new in terms of emotional truth and emotional violence and psychic pain, all mm. of that. This is the time when Deliverance and Clockwork Orange yeah. and, and all this kind of stuff was coming out. And Hoffman was a new Hollywood actor who was kind of at the forefront of that. And pushing himself, I think, because this is about a character who is quite naturally cowardly, who over the course of the film learns to defend himself. I would agree that the film, I mean, if you stage it as a Western, Mm. it obviously has more sympathy with the settlers than with the kind of savages who who are trying to invade their, their homestead. The title kind of references a Chinese proverb about the disposable nature of man you know the, the, you, you'll cast them away like straw dogs or whatever it is so on another level it kind of regards all these characters as insignificant I would take issue with the idea that he didn't know what he was doing I mean I think mm. he has in fact Dave Kerr interestingly even though he didn't agree with the philosophy of the film he thought it was kind of reactionary but he said you know it really feels like Sam Peckinpah's thought this through where he thought that Kubrick's cynicism in Clockwork Orange was comparatively more glib. Uh, I mean, you could boil the film down to, well, you know, women know their sexual power and use it, and maybe, you know, they're kind of coying with disaster and kind of asking for it, and men feel better when they take control violently, and that's the only way they're ever going to have a civilization is if they also respect their animal instincts. You can boil it down to that. But I think... It comes out in a way that feels more deeply felt and thought through and, and, and complex than that. He immerses you in that worldview, even if you come out of it feeling slightly dirty and thinking, hang on a minute, mm. I don't agree with that quite, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Say the listeners did take the plunge with this film and they're mm. interested in going in a direction with Sam Peckinpah, would it be going back with The Wild Bunch or going ahead into his 70s work? Where would you go next? Yeah, I think Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid is still to come, which is mm-hmm. an incredible movie. But this is, I mean, Straw Dog is kind of on a roll before quite a steep decline yeah. in mm-hmm. the late 70s, early 80s, when you get into kind of like the Osterman weekend territory. Right. Beware. You know, I mean, he really he really peaks with movies like The Wild Bunch, which is the late 60s, yeah. and then the film directly preceding Straw Dogs, The Ballad of Cable Hogue, which is, as I recall, quite a charming film, mm. actually. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't really feel like something that you would think would be sandwiched in between Straw Dogs and The Wild Bunch, which is, you know, two of the most intensely violent and disturbing films of the era. All right. Well, fascinating. Anyway, that's Straw Dogs Film Club. If you do watch Straw Dogs or The Souvenir or Bait, let us know what you think at uh, Truth and Movies on Twitter, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email or at the comments section at lwis.com slash podcast. Next week, Pennywise is back in its chapter two. We're also reviewing Rojo and Dustin Hoffman's back, back in his cage in uh, Midnight Cowboy. Let us know what you think at the usual channels about that classic celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. They're getting a re-release, I think, week after next as well. Fantastic. Anyway, Adam, Ian, thank you so much for joining me this week and talking about what's quite a great week for British cinema. I'm Michael Eder, and as always, this has been a 7 Digital production. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.